Money and Me on Your Money, only on Money FM 89.3. Today, we're excited to take a closer look at China's gaming rhetoric and its impact on China's tech giants and its tech stocks, all sitting in the world's biggest gaming market. China's initial rhetoric on how to curb time and attention spent by adults on games led to investor panic and losses for its major tech companies to the tune of billions of dollars. Shares in Tencent tumbled more than 12% on Friday after regulators rocked market with the um, draft rules. Tencent net ease. Billy Billy shares plunged to their lowest in more than a year after China's National Press and Publication Administration published these drafts rules that would prohibit incentivizing the daily sign-ins for games amongst other very commonly used revenue-generating practices in the gaming world. That was Friday and then Tencent regained some of those losses, rising more than 5% in Hong Kong yesterday uh, in Hong Kong market its first trading session after the official rhetoric appeared to channel a softer stance by Beijing. Bit of a turnaround. So rival NetEase rose 10% after closing the previous session, down almost a quarter. Now, as China mulls how gaming is monetized and how it intends to support the healthy development of the sector, capital market fears mount as investors ponder the ramifications of the hit to the gaming sector, the policy risks involved in sinking money into Chinese equities. And of course, we'll, we'll ask today as well if weak sentiment in China-related assets will continue. And as we turn the page and look to 2024, we'll reflect on a year of uneven global recovery, inflationary pressures, and look forward to investment strategies for next year, focusing on the investment outlook for the world's richest nations. And who better to share his thoughts on all this with us than one of our favourite commentators, Arun Pai, from the investments team at Monks Hill Ventures. Good morning, Arun. How are you? Good morning, Michelle. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really well. So when you heard about these draft rules recently published last week, looking to curb spending and how that led to an $80 billion sell-off in some of China's biggest tech names, uh, what initially came to mind? Do you think this is different from the gaming curbs that we saw in 2021? Yeah, I, I think I probably have a little bit of a contrarian view to this, wherein maybe let's you know deep dive a little bit more into that. This is always going to be an issue with the centrally controlled government in a sector that is not furthering national interest, right? I mean, no, I, I wouldn't imagine the CCP basically wants a bunch of 10-year-olds running around in China playing on their video game for like 10 hours a day. That is definitely not in, in the long-term interest of what the central government wants for the country. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, I wasn't surprised, especially after we saw what happened to the education sector a year and a bit ago. It wasn't much of a surprise that they would clamp down on gaming uh, once again, right? I think what was interesting, though, for me is mm. the reaction, like the government, not U-turning, I would say, but taking a little bit of a pause, taking a little bit of a step back, and in a way trying to appease the markets a little bit more. Mm. So Friday, obviously, the news came out and this, you know, stock market, uh, especially the gaming, uh, especially Tencent and NetEase just completely crashed. Saturday, they came out with certain news items. Sunday, they came out with certain more news items saying that they're going to be uh, in active discussions with, mac- with market participants and trying to uh, figure out and suss out how to uh, trend forward because the rules were a bit opaque in nature, right? And they came out with all of this other news and I was sitting back and thinking, 
would this ever have happened in China, let's say like three, four, five years ago, like pre-COVID, pre the property crash collapsing? Absolutely not. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the central dictate has been issued and uh, so be it. I, I don't care if you're Jack Ma. I don't care if you're anyone else. This is the rule of the land. Things seem to be changing. And this is potentially, you know, like a a half-glass full kind of statement. But I I do feel that the government is realizing more and more that purely running things from the center and, you know, just looking at their own benefit in mind is not going to pan out according to plan. So working with the market to at least some little bit of an extent to figure out next step, I think is going to be the way forward. We saw that a little bit during COVID. Uh, We're seeing that a little bit more in the property side, even though uh, I would have preferred a lot more to to have happened already in that space. Uh, We're seeing that a little bit in the gaming side also. Uh, So yeah, let's see. Uh, I I think it's a, a very interesting thought, especially for an outsider peeking into the country as to how the ever evolving dynamics of the political side versus the business side in China is uh, playing out, especially for next year. This is a really interesting perspective that at the heart of it, you have to see that this is China trying to ensure the psychological well-being of its population in its eyes, so well-meaning, also trying to curb myopia levels in its youth, um, you know, increasingly glued to these games screens near their eyes and and how at the same time they're going to try to continually allay the concerns of capital markets. As you say, you know, quite stunning that it's come out the way it has so soon after those fresh rules were proposed that led to the tanking of Tencent and NetEase and Bilibili. So going forward, of course, people are wondering what this means for innovation in the gaming sector. What do you think? Does this mark the beginning of the end for the mobile gaming business model in particular? I, I don't think so. I, I, I think um, as typically the way innovation works, it goes to extreme, mm. right? And you've got to hand it to gaming companies to figure out the perfect psychological means of getting addicted to uh, a certain game. I mean, I have fallen folly to that, right? If you ask my wife about this, I've been playing this new game for the past, like, week, and I spend hours on it. Daily. What is this game, Arun? It's no joke. What is it called? It's, it's some random game. I mean, I hate to embarrass myself on live radio. Okay, it's called right. Survivor.io, right? It's a silly game. It came across my Instagram feed. I thought it was a very silly game. Downloaded it, and it just, it, it, it hooks you on. And, and you can just, and, and I know having invested into like early stage startup, we try to come up with like all of these hooks, right? Which yeah. encourages people to spend more time. I mean, we don't invest into gaming necessarily, but it's like a different kind of hook. So maybe say e-commerce or edutech uh, kind of apps, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. But the gaming industry has made, done this to perfection, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Every color, every spin of the wheel, every new feature that pops up, et cetera, et cetera. It just, it sucks you in and it keeps you there. And that's the reason why, like, I mean, look at TikTok, right? Yeah. If you look at the metrics of what TikTok has achieved in terms of number of hours spent, I think in the US, on average, people spend about two hours per month on the Amazon app. And they spend something like 33 or something plus hours on TikTok. If you gamify the e-commerce experience of that, you suddenly open up a massive market to try to uh, monetize. Mm. And that's exactly what gaming industry has done perfectly well. Now, with the right regulation, is it entertaining? Yes. You know, do human beings need some form of entertainment? Absolutely. <laughs> but so putting all of that together with a certain amount of right regulation, 
And I hope that, especially with these ding-donging moves of the Chinese government versus the market, like a nice steady state will be achieved where, look, continue to come up with innovation. It's your job as a company to, you know, attract more users, get them to obviously spend more money on it, make it more competitive, you know, draw all of those raw human instincts and try to monetize on that, but to a certain extent. And I think that's what the overarching thesis, again, speaking from a perspective of the half, the glass is half full and giving the benefit of doubt to the Chinese government, mm-hmm. which I know a lot of other people might not be willing to do so. I think that's the end goal that they're hoping to achieve, wow. where companies innovate, uh, you know, by all means, this is it is basically a capitalistic society. You make a certain amount of profit, but not excessively so and not to the complete detriment of your local uh, population. Wow, beautifully said Arun. So many different um, points there that are, are, are absolutely fantastic and ripe for picking, especially that point on how the gaming industry has really hacked cycle, our, our psychologies in order to keep us spending much more time and spending much more money, leading to irrational consumer decisions with money. You know, and this is the nub <laughs> and the heart of it. It's like walking into the casino. We all know what it's like. You walk into a casino, you get free food, you know, yep. no clocks, <laughs> the, the sound of the dings keep you wanting to put money on the table. And this is like, the casino writ large, right? <laughs> with, with, with digital uh, outreach of customers, right? Which means ah. the scale just becomes infinitely more than a physical casino. Absolutely. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you. I'm going to find a book on that and read up more on that, really. Let's stay with China's economy, um, Arun. China's disappointing post-COVID recovery has raised so much doubts about, you know, its potential to keep up with its stunning growth. And experts expect China's economy to slow in the coming year to 4.6%, following a predicted 5.2% expansion this year. Do you agree with the gloomier outlook for China? In the short term, I sadly do have to agree to some extent. Right. And, and this is something that I got wrong, to be honest. I mean, if you go back in time and, uh, you know, you listen to what I was saying on your show about a year plus ago, because the government and the economy is run in a central fashion uh, and there is basically like complete control over how things should be run, I would have thought even in spite of the massive problem, which is the property sector, because this is a centrally controlled government, they would be able to get a good handle on. And it's it's something that kind of happened even in the U.S., right? As much as everyone wants to claim that it's a federal versus state and everyone is looking out for their own self. If you go back in time to the GFC, like the global financial crisis back in 2008, and you see what the Treasury Secretary, what the Fed, what the government pulled off, it was basically everything was just being run from the center, right? So during crisis, I think a, a testament and kudos to uh, the strength of the U.S. economy, and I know we'll be talking about that a bit later in your show, as you highlighted in the beginning, kudos and the testament to that that they managed to pull it off. And I think that like that huge bazooka that was executed in 2008 by the U.S. literally saved not just the U.S.'s economy, but the global economy. China has sadly not been willing to uh, rip that band-aid off. And it sadly seems to be trudging along, you know, doing stopgap measures a little bit more of the way that Europe dealt with this issue. Mm-hmm. And I think the hangover of that is, you know, it lasted for like 10, 15 years in Europe. And it would be very sad, honestly, to see if that's if the same thing happened in China. Look, I'm still an optimist. Mm-hmm. I still think they'll get their act together. Me too. This is a country and a system which was basically like a trillion dollars of GDP uh, just at the start of 2000. And now it's anywhere between like 17 to 20 trillion dollars, right? Like 
nowhere in the history of mankind, including the U.S., have we seen this rapid growth in this massive, like a large amount of society, the way that we are seeing in that we have seen in China. You ask anyone from like Elon Musk to local business in Singapore, local business people in Singapore. Mm-hmm. If you have the right relationships, you have the right collections, you want to get something done in China, and it's in the interest of the country, it will happen, and it will happen very, very quickly. You can't say that about any other country in the world, right? Especially at scale. So they've got the right ingredient, different ingredients from what the U.S. economy has, but you know, each to their own, right? I, I don't necessarily think there's a right or wrong way to achieve long-term economic prosperity. So they have all those ingredients. But uh, in the short term, unless this property sector issue is truly resolved to the core, it's going to be like such a big drag on economic growth. And I think that's what we're seeing continue to pan out. Yeah, the Business Insider has a great, um, had a great sort of conference of economists and they were looking at the property sector saying this is not going to go away. And until this real estate slump is met with head on, this is going to be another headwind for China's economy picking up next year. Because, you know, the question is, have Chinese households lost confidence in property? as a channel for wealth accumulation. How to predict uh, exactly if that's happened and if and when the sector will stabilize. But we all know how key it's been to growth in previous decades. So the real estate slump is a real problem. Exactly, especially within Asian mindset, right? Where we over here typically want to own our own property. It's not a it's not a rental society. Everyone wants to own their own property, accumulate wealth with that. Property prices, quote unquote, keep going up, and you just keep leveraging off of that. When that uh, flywheel gets broken, mm-hmm. it starts causing issues at a mass scale. And I think we started seeing that already with a couple of property developers going bust, which happens fair enough. But really large ones with that kind of debt, with so many people actually going to the streets and protesting in a country mm-hmm. like China. That's something that's like not happened for a really, really long time. And this is where I think, again, the central government really needs to get a very firm control over this. Use the playbook of the U.S., right? Like good bank, good bank, bad bank, clean up the system. You look at where financial stocks are trading in China at abysmal levels because no one trusts what's there in the balance sheet. So until you can get that trust back in the market and finance is such a it's a it's a game of complete trust, right? Mm-hmm. There's no other way to manage this. And so until you get that back into the ecosystem and get the dollars or the yuans flowing uh, in the right way, I think that's going to be a big issue. A fantastic overview of the critical economic challenges for China in 2024. And uh, a beautiful line there about finance being all about trust. Okay, let's look at the US markets. Arun, the stock market climbed the wall of worry to some impressive gains in 2020. Um, let's take a reflective moment. What stood out for you this year? And what are some, you know, maybe thoughts that are going to impact the way you look at capital markets that you will take as you move into 2024 with you? Yeah, look, while the end of the year and just because the calendar year turns from 2023 to 2024 or whichever year to whichever year, didn't mean that it suddenly changes the way you invest or anything like that, mm-hmm. right? But it does, it's a good uh, time stop gap, I guess, to take a little bit of a pause and see how your portfolio is doing and uh, figure out what you're going to be doing uh, going forward. And, you know, and I've been quite transparent to show throughout. I think there were some stocks that I mentioned that did very well, uh, some not so well. 
So we, you know, deep diving on that. The one that did the best for me was uh, uranium. I think that was my like number one pick uh, at the beginning of the year. Uh, FRUUF. It's like a unit trust that basically keeps acquiring uh, physical assets of uh, uranium. Uh, done really well, up close to 80% for the year. So that was a big win. Um, one that wasn't a big win was uh, Alibaba. You know, like I was quite a big fan of the stock and I still am. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's down 15% for the year. A uh, couple of others like Interactive Brokers, uh, Scorpio Tankers in the product market space, uh, they underperformed the index. Uh, they're up about 15 to 20% as compared to the S&P, uh, which is up 25% for the year. Uh, financial sector, I think, uh, you know, I, I was speaking very highly of JP Morgan and, DB, and DBS. Uh, JP Morgan tracked the index. Uh, DBS is actually down for the year, give or take. I think a couple of percentage points. It was a tough market to outperform the index this year. Why? Because if you look at where the returns of this 25% of the index have come from, is basically completely on the back or largely on the back of the strength of the Magnificent Seven, which is basically your FANG stocks, so Facebook uh, FANG, and uh, Tesla with NVIDIA, right? So you had these seven stocks the worst performing of these seven stocks hmm. was Google that was up 50% for the year. So just imagine that, right? You're talking about a trillion dollar stock all the way up to, I think Apple now recently surpassed like $3 trillion. You're talking about these massive businesses that have been growing at the minimum in terms of the shareholder return at 50%, Gosh. which is amazing, right? So like yeah. NVIDIA is up like 250%, uh, Tesla is up over 100%. The worst performing was Google at 50%, which is amazing. But at the same time, it just goes to show an S&B uh, being obviously, uh, you know, market-weighted, a market-weighted index. These large, uh, other than Berkshire, which I'm not sure what the annual returns were, these seven stocks basically uplifted the entire index. So unless you were heavily involved in these specific names, it would be very, very tough to beat the index. And interesting learning curve from that, right? Like I personally, under even though I'm in the tech sector in early stage tech investing, I genuinely underappreciated the economic moat that these massive companies have. But in addition to that, the ability for them to be able to achieve such, it's not just the stock market went up, right? Like the underlying business fundamentals of these companies were phenomenal in spite of the slowing down of the economy, VC money drying up, uh, the entire startup tech space came under a lot of scrutiny, et cetera, et cetera. And many, in a large part, the tech sector actually didn't perform that well. But these seven businesses just had a like you know by, uh, to their name magnificent time in the stock market this year so yeah that was a big lesson learned fantastic help us understand this is a very geeky investor question um why then have uh, have we seen etfs highly exposed to the magnificent seven being pummeled this year it was so the ETFs were not specifically only for FANG, right? It was actually like more SaaS companies, tech companies in general, etc. And depending on the constituents of those in, uh, of those ETFs, it might not have been market weighted. It might have been equal weight. Like you'll have to go into the nitty gritty of seeing what those underlying ETFs were. Hmm. So tech multiples as a whole, they collapsed quite significantly, right? Because these were your high flying like uh, software as a service companies that were trading at like eighty times, hundred times revenue multiple. And we started seeing that tech winter begin probably around 2022 Q1, Q2, and it continued its, uh, you know, trajectory downwards to some extent for the last year and a half. And that's what we've seen in the startup space also, right? Like earlier stage investing. All those multiples have collapsed. People are willing 
to put their money into businesses that are profitable, stable, uh, have very clear visibility into the future. And from that perspective, if you're running on the AI trend, which NVIDIA is doing, uh, to some extent Tesla, uh, if you're going on the strength of how Facebook's metrics have now come back uh, in terms of be it user growth, in terms of monetization of that user growth, and not just Facebook, right? I mean, the entire meta universe, obviously. Uh, Google having a multiple different levers, Google, Google Cloud, in spite of like relatively slower growth, they managed to pull off uh, impressive growth numbers. The same thing about Microsoft. All of these businesses managed to uh, genuinely outperform market expectations in terms of top line as well as bottom line. Mm. And hence the market rewarded them tremendously because there's no other place to put their money. Bonds crashed with interest rates going up. Uh, weak software tech companies that were trading at inflated multiples that did not that were not profitable, uh, valuations came crashing down because the cost of capital was not zero. Uh, banks went through its own little tumultuous period where because of Silicon Valley Bank, if you go back in time, led to a big correction in the finance space. Uh, but even over there, if you think about it, like look at JP Morgan, right? It's up 25% rest of the financial stocks not been faring that well. If you look at JP Morgan, just that entity makes close to 20% of all the profits of all the banks in the US. Imagine that, right? So if you're an investor and you can see that there's stability mm-hmm. with JP Morgan, it's a cash-making machine, mm-hmm. you will naturally, you, you, the flight to safety, the flight to quality will take place. And we've seen that taking place over the past uh, year, year and a half Capital is not, the cost of capital is not zero. I'm going to put my money into something safer that's giving me a decent return. And I have visibility into what they're going to be doing over the next couple of years. And they'll go back to the best. Mm. JP Morgan in the case of finance, uh, large tech companies in the case of tech. Absolutely fantastic. Before we let you go, we want to make sure that this show becomes a classic of all times and we replay many, many times next year. So we have to ask for your uh, outlook for 2024. Um, we avoided a recession in 2023, the US that is. What is your outlook for 2024? Many experts predicting different things. RBC Global Asset Management putting the odds of a US recession in 2024 at 70%. Um, what are you thinking? If you ask me uh, at the beginning, if you ask me at the beginning of the year, can interest rates be where they are right now? And yet the strength of the economy is still where it is. I would have said that's close to impossible. And I think what the Fed has managed to pull off, what the underlying strength of the US economy is, uh, the strength of the consumer with the amount of savings they still have in their bank accounts, and there's all sorts of statistics about that, has been uh, truly amazing. If you're sitting right now, I think if there is a recession, if there isn't a recession, really doesn't make that big a difference because we are sitting in a spot where interest rates are far above zero. The Fed has already started shrinking their balance sheet quite substantially in the past like uh, three to six months. So there is enough firepower to ensure that unless there's a massive calamity, we will be able to have some kind of a quote-unquote soft landing. So from that perspective, I'm actually quite uh, relatively optimistic about next year, recession or not. I think it goes back to the basic. You know, take a close look at your portfolio. Uh, a, a couple of things that I'd like to leave your uh, listeners with. Yeah. Compare. You always sit and try to compare your returns with that of uh, an index that you're trying to track. Hmm. Right. So it could be the S&P 500, it could okay. be the global index, whatever it might be. Do not move your goalposts just to make your own returns look good. Right. Like be honest with yourself. And another really good exercise 
is in this day and age of like over trading, yeah. look at your portfolio at the beginning of the year. Okay. See if you did absolutely nothing to it, right? Like zero trade. And then see what your return would have been if you left your portfolio static versus you having done all of these trades trying to time the market in and out, etc. And see what your returns actually are. And if you do that over a period of, say, like three, five years, mm-hmm. I think you'll start seeing some very interesting trends. <laughs> so wow. maybe I'll just leave your listeners with that. No, it's really great. This has been a half glass full uh, show. And those are some great, great questions that we can realistically work on as we reflect on the year. So thank you so much, Arun. That's really been a Christmas stocking stuffer of a show for us. Appreciate <laughs> Thanks it. Thanks as always for having me, Michelle. <laughs> and Happy New Year ahead. Arun Pai there from the investments team at Monks Hill Ventures. You're with me here on Money and Me. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.